The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. to set you free. How you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Hello. Hello. Uh, Welcome to the only true democracy in talk of for and by you, the people. Yes, a little play on that for those constitutional scholars out there. How are you? Happy Tuesday. Is it Tuesday? I've lost track of the days, uh, clearly. Uh, Still doing TV, but usually once a week instead of like four times a week. Uh, Still doing different podcasts. I did uh, Brett Baer's podcast today, his campaign trail podcast. Still doing this show. As you know, uh, I am live for an hour on Tuesday and Friday. I have other great people uh, doing this show like Mark Levine uh, with the Inside Scoop and Brad Bannon with DC Deadline and other guest hosts that we have uh, sitting in for me. But we're glad to have you with us uh, today here on the show. Uh, thank you for tuning in uh, via Twitter. And uh, for those, because this is only like our second, right? Our second Twitter uh, broadcast and our Periscope uh, podcast, uh, broadcast podcast. I don't know. I am technologically a moron. So without the wonderful village that it takes to make Leslie Marshall this show and all things Leslie Marshall, I would be lost. Uh, but right now we're going to start the show with a little thing. and We're going to do an extended version of it today. A little thing we like to call ripped. From the Well, 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 after more than a week of intense negotiations, the Trump administration and Congress reached a deal today on a $450 billion interim coronavirus funding bill. Now, I just want full disclosure here. I own a company. I actually own two companies. Uh, With my husband, I own a percentage of a 24 surgical medical group. Um, And uh, then I own this show. And uh, there are people who rely on me for their paychecks, uh, for their livelihood, And I'm relying, like many small business owners, on the government to help out with PPP. So why does this matter, this this, uh, negotiation where they reached a deal today? The agreement will replenish the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, the Stimulus Bill's Emergency Loan Program for small business, and deliver billions for aid to hospitals. That's why Democrats were stalling, by the way, not the Kennedy Center, which I wasn't happy with last time, first time around. But billions for aid to hospitals and expanded coronavirus testing, I'm all for it, not only because I'm married to a healthcare professional um, and I know how desperate the hospitals need this aid, but we really don't know what's going to happen with this virus. If we're going to have it come back around in the fall or the winter or earlier with so many governors like in Georgia, Governor Kemp uh, saying, hey, you can go get your nails done, go bowling and uh You know, what else can you do? That's absolutely crazy. Go to the gym and touch a lot of equipment that somebody else is going to touch and sweat. (laughs) A lot of fluids. Yeah. 
Here's the state of play on this. The final legislative text has been completed and the Senate is hoping to pass and not, and not text as in text message, text, like the text of the legislation. Uh, and the Senate is hoping to pass the bill during a 4 p.m. pro forma session. Now, meanwhile, members of the House are beginning to return to Washington for a vote that could take place as early as the day after tomorrow on Thursday. The president has urged Congress to pass the bill in a Tuesday tweet because uh, the president does communicate that way, right? uh, signaling that he is ready for the legislative branch to move on to a fourth stimulus package. By the numbers, the vast majority of the funds, $310 billion, is for replenishing PPP. That dried up last week. Roughly $60 billion of that total will be allocated to small lenders and community banks. The rest includes, here's the breakdown, $60 billion for the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. That reaches communities and small businesses in underserved areas, translation, minority, and rural areas. But areas where minorities, because we saw a disproportionate amount of minorities, kept out of the fray uh, last time around. $75 billion for hospitals. That's very good. $25 billion to expand testing. And that's essential. Not just the hospitals, because they can't even handle some of the volume now, but we don't know what it's going to be going forward, like I said, with some of these irresponsible governors and what, what this virus will do, because it's new to everyone. It's a new virus in our existence on Earth. So nobody really knows what's going to happen. Nobody has a crystal ball. They have their ideas. SARS did not come back, but other viruses typically do, or viruses typically do, uh, seasonally in the fall and the winter, all the way uh, through the spring. Uh, it is worth noting one of the biggest issues that the PPP faced in the rollout of the program was that small businesses in underserved communities struggled to compete with bigger businesses that had existing relationships with uh, banks. That's why you saw places like Shake Shack, to their credit, give back $10 million. But Shake Shack shouldn't have got $10 million because they had enough money in the bank probably to keep things going. Well, the small mom and pop Burger Shack really needed that money to pay their employees and themselves and to keep their business open. Um, so um, this bill carves is carved out so that community businesses and lenders don't have to fight bigger businesses and banks for the same funding. And by the way, that was a provision the Democrats fought hard for. But what is missing? Because every legislation has something missing or something in it you don't like. Well, what's missing? The deal does include uh, does not include 150 billion in aid for state and local governments. Uh, Democrats were seeking that. Uh, Senator Schumer told CNN, uh, minority uh, leader in the uh, Senate, Senate minority leader, uh, Schumer told CNN that the White House agreed to use leftover funding to replenish state and local revenues. So in other words, everybody's going to get their money. When are we going to get it? I don't know. I'm in line for PPP, just like so many of you. Let's rip another. The Senate Intelligence Committee today released the fourth volume of its report on Russian interference in the 2016 election. And that focused on a December 2016 intelligence community assessment provided to President Obama. Now, why does this matter? Well, the bipartisan report affirms the intelligence community's conclusion that Russia interfered in the election, specifically to help Donald Trump become president by defeating Hillary Clinton. Noting that the assessment, quote, reflects proper analytic trade craft despite being tasked and completed within a compressed time frame. So here's the bigger picture on this. The highly redacted report breaks with an investigation by the GOP-led, big surprise, House Intelligence Committee in 2018. They disagreed with the intelligence agency's assessment and concluded that the Russian government 
interfered in the election, but did not explicitly intend to help Trump win the election. Well, the Senate committee found specific, quote, intelligence reporting to support the assessment that Putin and the Russian government demonstrated a preference for candidate Trump and that Putin, quote, approved and directed aspects of that interference. The Senate committee also disagreed with the House's claim that the intelligence committees did not comply or agencies did not comply with analytical standards. Here's what they noted. Quote, the committee found the ICA presents a coherent and well-constructed intelligence basis for the case of unprecedented Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. The committee did not discover any significant analytic tradecraft issues in the preparation or final presentation of the ICA. You know, this is a 180, or like some people say, a 360, uh, a 180 from uh, the House. Uh, and it's worth noting, the report finds that the U.S. intelligence agencies did not use information from that infamous Steele dossier to support its findings. So sorry, people who want to argue with me on television, you can't use that as a, a defense. Uh, the dossier was included in the highly classified annex to the assessment, and that was in line with President Obama's directive. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to do more of this Rip from the Headlines segment with an extended Rip from the Headlines segment today on The Leslie Marshall Show. We also have a great guest joining us on a very timely issue uh, regarding COVID-19 coming up after that. Don't go away. Stay tuned. We'll be back. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. You ready? I'm ready. I'm Leslie Marshall. How you doing? Welcome or welcome back. Only True Democracy and Talk. We're continuing with our Ripped from the Headlines segment, the extended version on the show today, before we bring on our great illustrious guest uh, talking about a very important issue surrounding coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. Uh, but back to Ripped from the Headlines. Officials have identified seven people who appear to have contracted COVID-19 through activities related to the election on April 7th. This is a call what? according to the Milwaukee Health Commissioner, Jeanette Kowalik. She said this yesterday, six of the cases are in voters and one is a poll worker. Okay, so this isn't like, well, how would they figure that out? Uh, when you have six uh, voters and a poll worker who all came into contact with one another, you forget folks that, you know, I know I do this, you know, sometimes when you talk, you spit, you don't even realize it. Um, you know, or if you sneeze and you do this, maybe, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a, like a, a micro bacterial, you know, wetness coming out of your mouth or nose, you know, hits a piece of paper. Somebody touches that paper, that pen, uh, you know, you, you can try, but th this virus is strong and it hangs on for a long time. By the end of this week, officials hope to have additional information on those cases uh, that re were reported between that election day, April 7th, and yesterday. And that includes an answer to whether any of the seven cases resulted in death and whether the cases were concentrated at any of the city's five in-person polling locations. Okay, so they said, quote, there needs to be a little bit more analysis so we can connect the dots. That's why case investigation and contact tracing is so important. 
asked how to conduct contact tracing at polling sites when anyone present was surrounded by numerous strangers, this is what she said. She referenced doing broad notification for people who were present during a certain time frame. She said, quote, as you recall, there were people that were in line for a very long time to get their vote in. Remember, folks, six feet apart. But we're not even sure if six feet is enough, right? Some people say eight. And, you know, when you stand in line, unless it is really marked for you, like when I'm in line at the grocery store, I don't know if I'm exactly six feet behind that person. Maybe it's five and a half. Maybe it's more. Um, so they, she says when people are in line for a very long time to get their vote in, you figure out around a range of time when someone was there uh, or in the polling sites or in the line waiting to vote connected to someone who was an actual case. And then, of course, they would do notifications based on that. Uh, the mayor of Milwaukee, Tom Barrett, said about 3,500 voters came to each of the city's five voting sites. Dozens of workers were there as well. He said, quote, this will tell you why we were so adamant about trying to not have this occur. Um, and, um, you know, that's his reference to his reference to calls to cancel in-person voting. Department of Health Services Secretary Andrea Palm said the state's health agency had not yet seen evidence linking new cases of the virus with the April 7th election. Also warning that if cases do exist, symptoms may not have appeared yet. Remember, there's a two to 14 day incubation period. But here's the thing, folks. This is why mailing in our votes. This is why not going to the beaches. This is why not going back to our life as we know it yet. This is why Fauci says it's too early. Because not only is that there are that incubation period, but on April 7th, there were people that were possibly carriers or who had the virus right then standing in line were asymptomatic and didn't know it. Look at George Stephanopoulos. He has had no symptoms. His oxygen level is the same of my mother's who has no coronavirus. We make her check that in her temperature every day because she's alone. She's 80 and she's living where I grew up in the Boston area in Massachusetts to check in with me, my brothers and my husband every day. Um, but you know, this is why this is, this is not a joke. This is not about trampling on your first amendment constitutional rights. I love our constitution. This is about safety of other people. If you're a carrier or, um, you have coronavirus, you're carrying it. Even if you're asymptomatic, your immune system may be able to handle it better than that man, woman, or child that is perhaps less than six feet from you or, more than six feet, because we don't know how far really your sneeze will carry, your cough will carry, or when you, or by the way, and the, the six feet only does so for you transferring it to me directly, right? But what if you sneeze and it falls on an object I touch, a piece of paper, part of a shopping cart somebody didn't get when they wiped it down as they're wiping them down fast and they have to with so many people trying to get supplies, right? Well, Tuesday is going to mark the 14th day since the election. Today is the 14th day, a time frame during which the experts agree symptoms typically appear. The in-person election saw voters standing in line at the city's five polling places, and many of them that were there exposed to each other for hours on end. Let's rip another. Speaking of polling, speaking of voting, a majority of voters, 58 percent, favor nationwide reform of election rules that would allow all eligible voters to cast their ballots by mail. Um, that's according to a new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. Now, let me tell you something. I think this may be advantageous for both Democrats and Republicans, for, um, you know, people, uh, you know, in the military uh, or people who are disabled or the elderly, you know, they can get their ballots in and it's easier, you know, to mail it in, uh, write and mail 
than it is to go and actually vote and go and stand in line. And then there are people who have issues with their jobs. And some people work two, three jobs that can't get that time off to vote. Uh, Nearly 10% more say that while the rules should not be permanently changed, that all voters should be able to mail in their ballots this November. And that's because they have concerns that the coronavirus may still be a major public threat this fall. By the way, we don't know what it's going to be. So I would agree. We don't need to change it forever. But this year, I think we need to. The survey shows that 58 percent of voters support allowing voting by mail. Generally, 39 percent do not support it. it. Let me guess. uh, Some Trump supporters there, I would imagine, or some of those people who are screaming, I can't go to Wendy's in person. Uh, but you can just drive through. Uh, and and, and uh, a- a- anyway, I've lost my place here. Um, where am I? 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 Here we go. Here we go. An additional 9% of voters who back a one-time exception for a November have been added. That's a total of two-thirds. 67% of the electorate supports allowing anyone to vote by mail in this year's general election. And only 29% disagree with that. So the majority support for voting by mail overall represents a significant change over the past quarter of a century. A Pew News interest index poll in February 96 found that 48% favored allowing voting by mail for all voters, 47% uh, oppose it. The results of the NBC Wall Street Journal survey comes after more than a dozen states have postponed now their presidential primary contest or changed to an all-mail-in format. And that, of course, is amid the worries that in-person voting will put the health of poll workers and voters both uh, at risk. The rules for administering elections are determined by the states rather than by federal law. I think, you know, five states, including Colorado and Washington, already conduct election entirely by mail. More than half of states allow voters to submit absentee ballots with no explanation needed. Now, Democrats want Congress to mandate that states expand voting by mail, and they argue that the states may need as much as $4 billion in federal aid to shore up the resources needed for a huge increase in absentee voting in the fall due to the coronavirus concerns. But many Republicans, including the president, say mail balloting could dramatically increase the likelihood of fraud, even though it's a write-in. Trump said in a news conference that he opposes allowing nationwide voting by mail in November because he believes a lot of people cheat with mail ballots. Well, what? Really no evidence of that. How do you cheat? Why would you cheat? Seriously, it's your ballot. How are you going to (laughs) cheat on your own ballot? (laughs) And by the way, he's crazy. He's got a large elderly population of support out there for him, which would actually benefit from this. So he could benefit from this. Republicans think it benefits Democrats. It really doesn't. Democrats are pushing for it to keep people safe. It really doesn't benefit the Dems. I'm Leslie Marshall. We'll take a break. We'll be back right after this. Don't forget. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. And we're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Glad to have you with us on this Tuesday. We're also glad to have Jean Ross. Ms. Ross is an acute care nurse. She's also co-president of National Nurses United, the country's largest union and professional organization of registered nurses. They have more than 150,000 members nationwide. Uh, be sure right now to go to their website, nationalnursesunited.org, and on Twitter and Instagram, follow them there, at 
national nurses. Uh, Ms. Ross, Jean, which do you prefer? Welcome to the show this afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Jean is just fine. I'm glad to be here. Jean, I want you to know you're talking to the daughter of a retired CRNA, nurse anesthetist. Um, so I, uh, I have a very big spot in my heart for nurses because my mommy's one <laughs> or was one for many, many years. Well, we need all the help we can get. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there is a protest at the White House today and nurses are demanding uh, what I don't feel is unreasonable at all, period, and even less unreasonable in a time of a pandemic like COVID-19. Uh, they are not just requesting, not just asking, but rightly so demanding OSHA standard and mass production of protective equipment uh, for healthcare workers. Um, can you talk about what led to this protest in front of the White House today? Because obviously this is calling more and much needed attention to the tens of thousands of men and women working in healthcare uh, nationwide. Uh, and, you know, the tens of thousands of healthcare workers that put their lives at risk each and every day as nurses do being on the front line trying to fight this epidemic, this pandemic, excuse me. Well, our safety and well-being is of paramount importance to the public's health. Um, I don't think I need to say any more about that. We can't do our job, which we do want to do, uh, even in times that are scary and risky like this, without the proper PPE, uh, the personal protective equipment. You might say that we are your personal protective equipment. So we had written to the WHO, we'd written to the president, the CDC, uh, OSHA. We have been trying and trying, and we know the public is behind us. We thank the public for that. But I am afraid they, just as we, have built up to a point where we really have to do more pressuring. The CDC originally had guidelines in place that we agree with that were based on science, which is at the minimum an N95 respirator mask because it will filter out, that's where it gets its name, 95% of the virus, or PAPRs or CAPRs, uh, powered air purifying respirators. They're a step up, but we would agree with those too. Instead, we have been handed bandanas. We've been handed regular old surgical masks. Um, we've accepted construction masks, which do have at least some sort of filter in them. Um, now we're told gowns are in short supply. Some places have booties, some do not. So the CDC guidelines should stay the standard optimal protection for us, not the whatever you can get, because I can see a point where at some point you might have to go with something lesser, but we're not there yet. We have never been provided the optimal equipment that we need. So we're wanting people to email, call, uh, go to flood your legislators' lines with the insistence that the nurses and the other healthcare workers get the equipment they need now. And this is not just something that, you know, it's the fact we're even having this discussion in the United States of America a leading nation in the world with regard to allegedly freedom, uh, finance, uh, technology. Right now, there are thousands, and correct me if I'm wrong, there are thousands of healthcare workers, uh, nurses and others, who have become infected with COVID-19. 
And the reason they're becoming infected with the virus is due to that lack of PPE, due to that lack of personal protective equipment. Um, you, uh, you, know, you, you are the uh, second head or co-head of the largest union of RNs in the nation. And social distancing is you know, something you can't really do in an emergency room. And I was impressed that at this protest, the nurses are practicing social distancing. But what I find compelling and it's it's even more compelling because it's not just dramatic, but it's real. We're, the reading aloud of the names of the nurses in the United States who have been known to have died of COVID-19. This is not a joke. These individuals are dying without the proper equipment. And they're basically saying, please help us so we can help more of you. Am I right? That's exactly right. We're just we're not sacrificial lambs to be offered up on some altar here. We are out here to do a job that's to protect you and to protect ourselves while doing it. The way the country has chosen to do this is by, I don't know, black market, looking all over, looking to what they call supply chains. There's a better way. It's the Defense Production Act, the DPA. He needs to invoke it. The president needs to do it now. His way is not working. Uh, I want to point out, because you had mentioned this, to flood our elected officials who work for us with the money we pay them via our tax dollars. The congressional switchboard number, I want you to call this now. I want you to pressure your congressional members to get these nurses, to get these healthcare workers adequate PPE. This is not too much to ask. Remember, we can help flatten the curve, but that doesn't, we're slowing it down. We haven't stopped it. We need to stop this if we ever want to resume our normal lives. And just think, I think it was the uh, mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, the other day said, when he stands up there and says, this many died, that many died, they may be numbers on a page to those of us listening or those of us watching. But each of those numbers is somebody's mother somebody's wife, somebody's father, somebody's child, somebody's friend, somebody's coworker. So please call. Congressional switchboard number is 202-224-3121. That's 202-224-3121. You had mentioned uh, the president. Uh, you have been, mentioned the demands of the Trump administration's Occupational Safety and Health Administration uh, that, you know, that they... Uh, provide an emergency standard so that healthcare workers are provided with the optimal uh, PPE. Um, there was a petition uh, for OSHA on March 4th of this year for such a standard. It never received a response. Um, like you said, the Trump administration with regard to this is doing isn't working. Why won't the president give the nurses, give the healthcare workers what they are asking for, being that they are in a sense like his, he's commander in chief, and you guys technically are fighting a war called COVID-19. And it's like the military on the front line saying, please help, we need more bulletproof vests. Why isn't he listening to the cries of nurses and healthcare workers who are out there and, and can see what is needed and see what is happening every day so that they can help more people and protect themselves in the process? What is he and his administration saying? What is the pushback and why? We actually are not getting pushed back, not from him. What we're hearing is what appears to not be true. There's plenty of equipment. It's out there. You just don't know where to look for it. 
Um, if you talk to some of our employers, there actually is equipment there. Uh, they've got it under lock and key. I think they're saving it for a rainy day. Well, the rainy day is here. <laughs> it's pouring. We need it, and we need it now. The, the ideal, and, and we should still have it right now, is when a nurse goes into, let's just say it's a known COVID-19 patient. She should be able to, to have a mask, a respirator mask there. She should be able to have a gown. She should be able to have booties and gloves. She should not be told, make a request and someone will get it to you if we have it. In the meantime, use a surgical mask, which won't protect you. We know that. And then take your gown because we're running short of them and hang it up in that infected patient's room with the virus all around and hope when you come in there and put it on, which we have been taught never to do. You go into a room garbed up. You don't garb up when you're in the room. These are the kinds of things that our nurses are dealing with right now. It's so scientifically wrong. It's immoral because it doesn't have to be this way. So where there is equipment, we want it unleashed for the nurses to use. And if there truly isn't enough, start manufacturing it yesterday. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with Jean Ross, acute care nurse, co-president of National Nurses United. Check out their website, nationalnursesunited.org. On Twitter, follow them at National Nurses. The same goes for Instagram. And uh, also, um, I want to give out that number again. There you are. There you are. <laughs> now I can see it. I want to give out that number again. Oh, I don't want to do it to Jean. We'll give it out when we come back right after this. Don't go away. I'm Leslie Marshall. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. acute care nurse and co-president of National Nurses United. I'm Leslie Marshall, and National Nurses United is the country's largest union and professional organization of registered nurses. They have more than 150,000 members nationwide. Go to the website and check it out. Jot it down if you just want to watch Gene and I uh, for the next uh, oh, uh, 10, 15 minutes, nationalnursesunited.org. On Twitter and Instagram, follow them there, at National Nurses. Uh, Jean, thank you for holding a welcome back. We were talking about the protest today uh, in Washington, uh, begging uh, the president and, and demanding to have an emergency temporary standard so that nurses and other healthcare workers are provided with the optimal uh, PPE. Um, you were talking, Jean, to the requirements, uh, the, what are needed specifically with regard to PPE. And you pointed out that nurses require N95 respirators um, or a higher level of protection, as well as other protective gear when taking care of patients who might be infected with COVID-19. Uh, um, and because of the failure currently with this administration, uh, you're demanding that Congress include a mandatory OSHA emergency standard in its next COVID-19 legislative 
package. Um, Wearing a surgical mask during today's protests, one nurse read a letter to officials and she said, quote, we demand that you immediately get PPE to nurses, doctors and healthcare workers on the front lines of this pandemic. If you don't protect us, we can't protect our patients. My mom's a retired nurse. My husband is a physician at the hospital right now as we speak, goes in every single day. And one of the things, Gene, that you talked about earlier before the break was there seems to be this attitude, which is the supplies are out there, go and find them. Uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has alluded to this. So as California Governor um, Newsom, Gavin Newsom, um, that it's almost like a bidding war between the states and then within those states, within the hospitals. And I want to say one more thing and, and have you take it from here. My husband works at two different hospitals. And here's the difference. One hospital he works at has the situation you spoke of, uh, the gown, wear it again, hang it up. Uh, one N95 mask they do have. That's yours. You lose it. Good luck. And some people are finding that others are stealing, uh, for, for not not from the stash. But, you know, I don't have mine. I'll, I'll use that one. I found one. Yet there's another hospital that he works at in which uh, the doctors and nurses in the ER, they have a surgical mask, a COVID-19 mask. Um, they have a, a, a face shield, something that goes over their head. And then another thing that covers their whole body, including their feet. Um, so is it fair to say that, you know, when some people say, well, my hospital's doing fine, every hospital, every city, every town, every state has a different story because of this fight for supplies that is going on across the nation right now. Is that accurate to stay? Yeah, it's sad to say that that appears to be very accurate. Not only that, you can have a different standard uh, from unit to unit in a hospital. Um, often the hand doesn't know what the foot is doing. It takes that OSHA standard that you spoke about, about that we are demanding in order to force employers to pony up and get the right equipment in the first place. And we've known for years, I mean, we hoped it would be different with something like a pandemic, but anytime we ask and demand the safety factors that we do, for example, not just the PPE, enough staffing. We are not at a point where there's a shortage right now. You shouldn't be short staffing us. Indeed, you should be staffing up because we need more nurses. You need someone to watch you put that equipment on, watch you take it off, because that person is going to tell you whether you've breached a protocol or not and have made um, something dangerous for yourself or that patient. So we shouldn't even be discussing these things. But in this country, unfortunately, money is king and profit often does come before certainly our safety and therefore the safety of the patients. It's just despicable. Something, something else despicable are images many of us have seen today of healthcare professionals standing in the in the middle of busy streets. Denver, Colorado, uh, took place two days ago on Sunday, and they were blocking hundreds of right wing protesters traveling to these hospitals and healthcare facilities to demonstrate against stay at home orders. We have seen this happen in Western New York. We have seen it happen in Michigan, in Minnesota, in Pennsylvania. The list goes on. A couple of things. One of the things I thought is they could be blocking the path of an ambulance, taking somebody who is near death with COVID-19 or other things. We forget COVID-19 isn't just the only thing. The ER is still filling up with people who have heart attacks or break bones. 
you know, get in car accidents, um, you know, or, uh, you know, uh, have asthma attacks. I mean, the list goes on. Um, how, how, it just amazes me because I know that if those people end up with COVID-19, all those healthcare professionals will put aside any personal feeling to do their job and take care of that individual. So two things. One, how does it make you and, and the nurses, these healthcare professionals feel when you see governors saying, like in Georgia, it's okay now, go to the gym. Okay, go to the bowling alley. It's okay, I'm gonna loosen these shelter in place orders. And then secondly, uh, these, um, th- these protesters uh, protesting these stay at home orders and and really i mean yelling in the faces of people that are literally risking their lives every day well there seems to be a huge disconnect for those protesters because i would bet anything many of them a day or two ago would have been saying get the ppe to those nurses i would bet that they don't seem to understand that what they're doing is putting themselves and us at risk We keep talking about what it will look like when we are overwhelmed. New York has come closest. The rest of us are seeing the second and third waves come in. Um, There's no, um, there's a reason they describe it like a war. And we're not in the battlefield quite yet where you need to use less PPE, for example, and start sacrificing people because there aren't enough ventilators Apparently, we got ahead of that a bit, so that's good. But when you decide that your economy and money is more important in our lives than patients' lives, well, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to say that I live in this country. This is my country. Um, nurses, among other activists, have been trying to change things for years, and I had hoped at this point that some of that would be getting through. And instead, now we're more fearful than ever. Those determined nurses that stood up exactly, literally bumper to person in those um, crosswalks, they were doing exactly what you said. Some of them were determined to make a protest, and it was a great one in my mind. And others were doing exactly what you said. They were not letting ambulances and ill people into the hospital. So those nurses and other healthcare workers made a path, stood up against the cars so those people could get through. I have not seen one healthcare professional say, if you get sick, don't come to my hospital. But there are many people who feel that way. It's vindictive. It's vengeful. Uh, but many people feel that way. Um, I just want to say, because we have less than a 60 seconds, in a sentence or two, what would you like to leave our listeners and viewers with today? Nurses are here to protect you. We need to protect ourselves in order to do that. Nurses never give up on you. Do not give up on this. Do not give up on us. Well said. Jean Ross, acute care nurse, co-president of National Nurses United. Like I said, check them out, nationalnursesunited.org. On Twitter and Instagram, follow them at national nurses and if i can figure out how to get back to my message with mark (laughs) i can give you that number which we're going to post for congress i want you to flood the lines folks flood the lines healthcare workers nurses need ppe we got to get to the other side of this i'm leslie marshall thank you for joining us today